All right, look with me, please, in Jude, and we are actually continuing where we, literally, where we left off last week, so I'm going to uh, do somewhat of a review, um, maybe even a little more so than normal, because we are actually continuing from last week to finish uh, our study of this second portion of this third verse of Jude, and so I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to bring us back to where we were as we attempt to conclude this second portion of this uh, third verse before we move into the third portion of this. So within Jude, uh, we'll begin our reading in verse 1 and read through verse 3 for this evening and really be focusing again in on verse 3 tonight. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Just a brief review to help you remember. Jude, of course, uh, emphasizes rather than being the, he is the half-brother of Christ and the brother of James. And of course, rather than emphasizing this truth of of being the half-brother of Christ, he rather just says, I am Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So we know that James as well was an elder within the church, and we know that this is making a connection for them, of course, but they as being brothers, but not only brothers together, but also as being the half-brothers of our Lord Jesus. And again, it's important to recognize that Jude begins by not, not clinging as the Jews so often did. He's not clinging to a a a lineage physically that they would have such as the Jew would do obviously when Jesus in in John's gospel if you recall with me whenever Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and, and they say, uh, they speak in sp- of how that they are of Abraham's seed, and, and they were clinging to this physical lineage as being the people to whom God had committed his oracles, his covenants, his promises to the Old Testament Israel, if you will, that people. And so they are claiming this physical connection to God as though they are, they are, are entitled, if you will, because God has been merciful and gracious to them as a nation, as a people. And yet Jude, in this particular case, does not cling to any physical connection, though he identifies with that, but he's not emphasizing that. He emphasizes rather that he's the servant of Jesus Christ. And so the the spiritual connection that he has, because Christ is his Savior and his Master, was far more valuable to Jude than his physical connection to Jesus, even as a half-brother. Then he goes on to say, that he's writing, of course, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called, and we've dealt with those truths. Mercy unto you, peace, and love be multiplied. We've also delved into that to some degree, moving into verse 3, beloved. Again, when he says beloved, it's important that we recognize this truth, that uh, this is not just a casual greeting, but rather Jude is acknowledging that these are people who have received the love of God in Christ just as he had. And so he is identifying with them as being a people that now are common in Christ, have this common ground in Christ, which he goes on to further say here when he says, I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And so, again, he's he's stating that you that have received the love of God in Christ, I have received the love of God in Christ. It was my desire to write unto you of this common salvation. And I, again, believe that what Jude is saying, I I think there's two possibilities here, but, but 
predominantly, I think we see this even by the direction Jude then writes the epistle, that Jude is saying in a sense that he would desire to write to these fellow believers, fellow recipients of the, of the love of God in Christ concerning the depths of the riches of Christ and the salvation which has been provided for us commonly. This common salvation. Common, again, not meaning that it's not precious or valuable, but common meaning that they were all partners together equally in this salvation. It's a common salvation. There's no hierarchy here with God in salvation. None of us have received more grace or more love than the other. If we've received Christ, we've received all the grace of God and all the love of God in Christ. And so we are equally recipients of this grace and love and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And so Jude goes on to say, it, I wanted, I gave all diligence to write unto you of this common salvation, but then he says it was needful for me to write unto you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. And so there's an urgency that is present in Jude's writing here, and as we continue through this short epistle, you see the reason for that urgency and the warnings that Jude gives, but he is saying, this is what I desire to do, however, this is what is important at the moment. This is what is necessary at the moment. It is imperative that I write unto you concerning the responsibility and the privilege and the, the command that has been given that we contend for the faith. Now, as, as I have pointed out to you, there are three implications that demand our attention as stated by Jude, and we've divided this verse up in, these, in this portion in this manner. First of all, and we dealt some time in, uh, for a week, uh, a couple weeks, three weeks ago, I guess now, um, concerning this matter, that believers must personally engage the faith. And this is implied by the term earnestly. Now, earnestly contend, again, in English grammar, earnestly is an adverb, contend is a verb, and it's modifying the verb. But the actual statement that's being made here, of course, of this phrase, is that we are personally to engage the faith. It involves that of a personal struggle, of a of strife, if you will, even, that can be present. And we're going to look at that a little bit more in just a moment. Second, we say believers must personally defend the faith, and that's where we remain tonight. And that is implied by this term contend. And then third, believers must personally acknowledge the exclusivity of the faith as implied by Jude's statement when he says, once delivered unto the saints. The faith that was once delivered unto the saints. And once delivered again means once and for all time. So we have the faith that's been handed down. And I said last week, and and again, next week, Lord willing, as we complete this portion of the study this evening, we will move further into this and enter into this third part of the statement that Jude makes concerning the exclusivity of the faith. And in doing so, I said last week in introducing this to you that, that those to whom Jude wrote at that time were not confused about what the faith was. They didn't need any further explanation of what that actually was. They understood what Jude meant when he said that. Now today we read this and uh, so... So to speak, the, the faith, quote-unquote, has been so misrepresented or redefined in, in even religious circles or even modern-day Christendom today to the degree that when you say the faith, that can mean, that can have a plethora of definitions, a plethora of meanings. But that wasn't the case with Jude, and so we're going to get into that hopefully next week, Lord willing, as we we progress in this study. So we look first at how believers must personally engage the faith. And the implication of the phrase earnestly content, again, is one of personal engagement, personal involvement, and personal struggle. And I said to you um, 
that it's interesting how that so many today within the church, pastors, so what, ministries are saying, we need to engage the culture, engage the culture, engage the culture. But again, I remind you back to uh, Old Testament, and I gave you this example, of course, of Ahenias and Cushai. And if you recall how that they were sent, uh, Cushai was sent by Joab to tell David that Absalom was dead, and Ahimeaz uh, said, I want to run. And, and Joab says, you don't have a message for today. You don't have anything to take today. And he said, but I want to run. So Cushai goes. Finally, Joab throws his hands up, so to speak, and says, okay, Ahimeaz, go. You don't have a message, but run. So again, Ahimeaz overtook Cushai in the journey to David, makes it to David before Cushai does, and David says, is my son dead? He goes, oh, all your enemies are dead. He goes, but is my son dead? He goes, well, I know there was a struggle, contention going on, but I really don't know what that was about. So David says, you stand over here. Then Cushai catches up to him and makes it to David. And David says, is my son dead? He said, all your enemies are dead. He said, is my son dead? He said, all your enemies are as your son. And he was saying, your son is dead. Absalom is dead. And that's the only message that David was even interested in at the moment. Now, that being said, what you find is Cushai was running to David with the message. Ahimeaz was running to David and he got there before Cushai, and yet he had no message to actually give. He didn't have the answer. And so again, when we talk about engaging the culture, people often are gung-ho about going out and quote-unquote evangelizing or what have you, and yet they have no answers for any of the genuine questions that are being asked. They have no knowledge of the scriptures, they have no rooting and grounding in the truth, and they're like hemias because someone says, well, what about this? And then they're stumped and have no answer to give whatsoever. So you cannot engage the culture until you engage the faith. And that's the point. You have to have an understanding of the faith itself and be rooted and grounded and discipled and taught if you're going to engage a culture. And I told you before, I don't want to belabor the point again and, and drag this out, but this is so important for you to understand and recognize. When the church stops answering the questions in a real manner, not again using the word faith as an excuse for not having an answer. In other words, you know, someone says, well, why do you believe that? Oh, I just believe by faith. That's not an answer. You need to be able to answer why. And again, this isn't what I think. Peter says, if you recall, in fact, Peter's statement is one of the strongest, along with Jude's, for the case for apologetics within the church. And Peter said that we are to be ready. He didn't say we can convert people. He didn't say you can persuade people. He doesn't even argue that. He says, but we are to be ready to give answer to every man that asketh for the reason of the hope, the confidence that is in us. That means that we are to give real answers, not push it aside. And I said for much too long, the church has dismissed the questions and given shallow, non-substantive answers, which are not answers at all. And then the world is well prepared to answer those same questions. Not from a true premise, it's a false premise from which they answer them, but they will answer them in a meaningful, engaging manner. And the church has kind of just dismissed that. But those days are long gone where that's acceptable. It never was acceptable to where that's be rooted and grounded. And that's what Jude's talking about here. When he's saying that earnestly contend, we are personally engaging the faith. Last week, we began our examination of the second truth in Jude's exhortation, that believers must personally defend the faith, contend for the faith. Now, again, the root from which this verb, and I have to bring this up because if I don't, you may have forgotten, or if you weren't here, you don't know this potentially. And the root word from which this verb contend is translated is the word agon. And the word agon is translated in various manners within the scriptures. And the word agon, the root word from which contend is translated, is uh, the word from which we derive our English word agony. 
So agon is related to that of agony, and it deals with this contention or struggle that is present. And we find throughout Scripture, I just want to give you the references. I'm not going to read all these to you, but I will give you the word and the, how it's translated and then the reference. And this is the same word, agon. So the same word, which is the root word from which contend is translated, is also the same root word that is translated in Luke 22, 24 as agony, in John 18, 36 as fight, in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, striveth, in Philippians 1, 30, conflict, in Colossians 4.12, very interesting, laboring, and in Hebrews 11.33, subdued, and in Hebrews 12.1, let us run the race that is set before us. It's race. That is the word. So we are running this race. We are laboring. All this is the same root word agone. And so we see this, that this does not merely only mean, solely mean fighting and, and constantly having contention or being contentious. That's not what's being stated here. But there is to be a struggle concerning the faith, meaning we are to be personally engaged in a manner in which we are struggling. And by the way, that struggle takes place even within ourselves. We are constantly to be questioning what we claim our beliefs are with what Scripture teaches. And we are constantly to be confronted. Questions are to be asked not only of others, but we are to ask ourselves valuable questions and substantive questions concerning where we stand. And here's what you will find. When you begin to ask yourself questions concerning the faith, and you are in stu- stu- studying the scriptures for the answers, one or two th- of two things are going to happen if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. One, either your false premises and false beliefs are going to be torn apart by the truth of scripture, consistently taught, or what you have professed to believe is going to cause you to become, your study of scriptures concerning that will cause you to become more rooted and grounded in that truth. So, I, 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 again, I tell you that I listen to guys, watch, listen to debates, watch podcasts, such as that, vlogs, of people that I don't agree with. Now, I'm not talking about false teachers out there teaching just not blasphemy and heresy in that respect, no, but I'm talking about guys that take different positions than I take completely, and yet I am challenged as I hear their, and I'm talking guys that are studied in the Scripture, not just some guy voicing his opinion, but guys that are going to the Scriptures digging out the scriptures, and they may be wrong, at times I'm wrong, but they may be totally wrong, but what happens is this, I am constantly running as I'm listening through what they are saying with what I know of the scriptures in their context and the continuity of the scriptures, and I'm either, I'm either confronted with having to re-examine my position, or I am more firmly rooted and grounded in my position, realizing that is absolutely false. This is absolutely true according to the Word of God. So this is good for us. <laughs> this is something that should be, and we must be rooted and grounded in the truth. I reminded you last week, and we're going to spend some more time and or maintain the position of faith as he instructed the Ephesian believers. Again, I, just for a quick, quick review here of the book of Ephesians, divided into two parts, Ephesians 1 through 3, Ephesians 4 through 6. Doctrinal in nature, positional, and practical of chapters 4 through 6. Chapter 4 begins, Paul says that we are to walk worthy. I beseech you, therefore, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, wherein you are called. So he's saying live out this truth. Then he gets to chapter 6, still practical, and he says that we are to stand, right? Putting on the whole armor of God, stand, having your feet shod with preparation of the gospel of peace, so on and so forth. He goes through all the list of the armor. And in doing so, you must remember, you can never understand Ephesians 6 
until you understand Ephesians 1 through 3. Because 1 through 3, Paul is setting the foundation, saying this is your position in Jesus. And by the word, by the way, the word stand, when Paul comes to Ephesians 6 in this armor, and he says stand, notice he doesn't say march, he doesn't say fight, he doesn't say, he says stand. And the word stand means that we are to maintain the position. But then the question is, what position are you talking about, Paul? Well, chapters 1 through 3, God has provided for us in Jesus all that is necessary for us to maintain that position in the midst of all the battle that takes place. And so we are maintaining the position. That's what Paul means when he says stand. And we've seen in Romans 13 where Paul even explains that we are to put on the armor of light. And then he goes on to say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, Paul makes, contrary to what many people think, many times as they hear Ephesians 6 preached, this is not, again, a closet full of armor that we have tucked away somewhere in our lives. And whenever we feel like we need or there's some big battle that comes up, we go put on armor trying to suit up. No, when Paul says put on, when he says put on, the implication of that statement, the true meaning of that statement is that just as someone naturally gets up every morning and dresses themselves appropriately for the day, so the believer is to appropriate daily the provision of God made in Jesus Christ. And the armor is not in addition to Jesus Christ, the armor is Jesus Christ. It is different aspects of what God has done for us in Christ. And we see that to be true as we studied it for months in our study through Ephesians, just referencing it again because we're going back there tonight in relation to faith. So Ephesians 6 said, above all, now that's interesting in itself, because he says above all, all this armor, he's in the midst of this armor, this isn't even the last portion or piece of the armor, and he says above all, taking the faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. So Paul reminds us again that it is faith which is our greatest defense against the attacks of the enemy. Now, Paul alludes to this armor of the churches of Thessalonica. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Notice the similarities there, the helmet of salvation in Ephesians, and here he says the breastplate of faith and love. And in Ephesians, Paul refers to the breastplate of righteousness, Thessalonians, Paul mentions the breastplate of faith and love. And the significance of Paul's reference in both accounts is the protection which faith alone can provide. Listen, it's all said. Truth is not fearful of a challenge. And let me say to you, the faith is not fearful of a challenge. And those who are rooted and grounded in the faith are not fearful of a challenge. The reason people become fearful of being challenged about something they even profess or claim to believe themselves within the church today is because they're making a cheap profession of believing something that they themselves cannot provide any answer for as to why. And if that is the case, then yeah, you're going to be scared when someone questions you about something that you can't answer. But we're commanded to be ready to give answer as Peter says in his epistle. So Paul says above all. Now Paul is stating that in addition to maintaining the position in God's truth that he has provided us, God's righteousness and God's provision of peace, because remember he said that we are to stand in truth. We are to stand, 
with our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, we are prepared and stand in this peace. And again, let me make mention of this because it's important. Again, when he says that we are to stand having our feet shod in the preparation of the gospel of peace, this is an interesting statement because Paul is talking about attacks that are taking place and the armor that's been provided, the provision of Christ and how Christ is God's provision for us. And then in the midst of all of this conflict that is taking place, where if we are to maintain the position, he says, stand with your feet shod in the preparation of the gospel of peace. And again, what's so interesting here is that Paul, see, we have a tendency to look at that and go, okay, so now this has to do with peace in the midst of war. Not talking about peace in the midst of the attacks that we have peace with the enemy that's attacking us. No, this has to do with the peace that has been made by God in Christ Jesus. So we have peace with God, and even in the midst, midst of the attacks, we stand in perfect peace. Here's what I'm saying to you. The fact of the matter is simply this. No matter what anyone claims, and no matter what anyone says, and no matter what anyone does, and even if someone comes up to me who is who is much more intellectual than I am, much more intelligent than I am, maybe much more versed in Scripture than I am, even if that is the case, this is one thing that I know absolutely to be true. In the midst of all the attacks, I am to be prepared as a good steward of the gospel and the faith that I have been provided in the person of Christ. But even where I fell in that, I know this truth I am at perfect peace with God despite all the attacks that may come. And that's absolute. So I'm to maintain that position, maintain the truth that I'm at peace with God. In the midst of the attack, I'm not at peace at all what's going on around me, but I'm at peace with God, and that's really all that matters. This is the peace that Paul's referencing. So he says, above all, within the statement, Paul explains the significance of the presence of faith within our lives. And while we in righteousness, while we are grounded in peace with God, the enemy continually attempts to turn our focus away from the truth upon which we stand. And that is the real attack here. Look, Satan can't do anything to remove the peace that I have with God. He cannot do anything to remove the righteousness of Christ which has been imputed unto me. He cannot do anything to shake the foundation of faith upon which I stand. What it does happen? I am attacked in such a manner that it is easy for me to be distracted from these truths. And that's why Paul says, above all taking the shield of faith, because it's this very faith that is being attacked that is the provision God has made to conquer or overcome the enemy and the attack of the enemy. Faith is the means provided by which we believe God. What is faith? Faith is belief. And we're going to get into this again next week, but more in depth. But faith and belief, in fact, if I were to give you a a list, I did this in class a a couple weeks back in our theology class, but I I wrote down words like this. Faith, belief, repentance, regeneration, salvation, sanctification. And I put this whole list of words here. And then I asked everyone in the class, I said, now arrange them in the proper order. You can't, because all of these are all part of the same work (laughs) that is being instantaneously performed by God at the moment of being born again. And so it's not that they're all important and they're not synonymous, but they're all inseparably part of the same work. 
And so the point of the matter is that faith, if you want to ask what faith is, it's the means by which we are brought to believe in God. And what is believing? Well, believing, of course, is in trusting as biblically defined. Belief is to totally entrust one's spiritual well-being to Christ. So I'm totally entrusting my entirety, the entirety of my spiritual well-being to Jesus Christ. So here's the question. I'm attacked. What is the answer? Totally entrust my spiritual well-being to Christ. (laughs) I don't have all the answers. I'm unprepared. What do I do? Totally trust Christ completely in his sufficiency. Are you understanding? Faith is the answer. Believing God is the answer even against the attack that is being made upon the faith. For this reason, Paul says, above all, and above all literally means especially. So especially taking the shield of faith. This is of the utmost importance is what he's saying. And he says, above all, taking the shield of faith. So as I explained in our study of Ephesians chapter 6, the shield to which Paul refers is a large shield. It's able to be moved about as needed and to provide protection from all directions of the attack. And again, to cover and protect every portion of the beast interesting thought, for Jude commands his reader to contend for the faith, while Paul explains that it is the faith which protects us from all the attacks of the enemy. So we can rest and trust in the promises of God, for God has filled all his word in his, fulfilled all his word in his Son, and has sealed us with the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the token in dwelling within us, that his Spirit that reminds us of the truth that Jesus has spoken. He goes on to say, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Talking about the shield of faith. So as I previously mentioned, the attacks of the enemy are not personal, although such attacks do personally affect us. The enemy is constantly attacking people and the faith upon which we stand. What we do, we become so subjective or so self-focused uh, that we think that the attacks are against us. I'm, being, I'm under such attack and under such attack. Listen, what's being attacked is the gospel. What's being attacked is the faith. What's being attacked is Christ. And if you are in Christ, then yeah, you experience that attack. If Christ suffered, we are going to suffer as well. Peter says that. Paul teaches us that. Why? Because we are identifying in him. Jesus even said, if the world hate you, remember it hated me first. Why does it hate us? Because of Christ in us. That's the whole point. So the attacks are not personal, though we experience them in a personal manner. The attacks are against the gospel and against the faith. By the way, that makes a big difference, too, with how we view all of this, even contending for the faith. Because if you think that this is all about you personally being some isolated soldier out there on some battlefield and you're supposed to just fight off every attack that ever comes. It's not about you and it's not about attacks against you. It's about attacks against the truth, against the faith, against the gospel. And that being understood, then we recognize that it's not about us being out there by ourselves trying to accomplish or win some battle that we're not even commanded to win, but just simply to stand and maintain the position that God has already given us, which is the victory that God has given us in Christ. So we, we need to recognize these truths. Paul explains it's the very faith which is constantly under attack that is the means by which the attack of the enemy is quenched or overcome. In 1 John 5, 4 and 5, John wrote, and we dealt with John some weeks back, but he said, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? 
but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Now remember, John's day, what he's dealing with is the spirit of Antichrist. Remember that? The Gnosticism that's crept in and, and to the church in a very predominant manner, and he's fighting against this, of course, and declaring the truth of Christ. And then you find that he says, look, this is the victory. Here's, whosoever is born of God, the new birth, overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. How are we overcoming the world? It is faith. But what is faith? It's being born again. And what is being born again? Who is he that overcometh the world, he then asked. But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you understand the statement what John is saying? In the, in the day in which people are saying that Jesus either did not come in the flesh or that the man who came in the flesh is not the Son of God, in John's, in the attack against the faith in the first century church in which John is residing, <laughs> he is saying that there is this attack against the deity of Jesus Christ or that Christ came in the flesh, that he is the Messiah. And he's saying, but yet, those who believe, or those who've been born again, possess the Spirit of God dwelling within them, they overcome the world. How? By faith. But what is faith? Who is he that overcometh? That believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So again, the point being made is that those who are overcoming in the faith are those who are totally trusting and resting that G, in the truth that Jesus is who he declared himself to be, who God had declared him to be, and who he manifested himself to be. So faith is the means by which we are provided in daily experience the victory we've been given in Jesus Christ. The question I would ask you, just simply, and this goes back to Ephesians again, which we're looking at in relation to defending the faith or contending for the faith. And so back in Ephesians, if you go back to, there, to that passage and you ask the question, um, has God or has God not given us the victory in Jesus Christ? Yes. A resounding yes, right? So the victory is already ours. Hence, when we view Ephesians 6 again, it's not, Paul's not saying, now you go fight so you can gain victory. Is that what he says? As a matter of fact, John clarifies it for us. Let's read that verse again. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. So, so, what is the criteria for one overcoming the world? That he's born of God. That's it. That's interesting, isn't it? You know what that's showing us? And then he goes on to say, well, this is the victory that overcometh the world. What is the victory? Even our faith. So faith is the means by which we have been made victorious over the world. That faith brings us to a, it births us into the family of God and causes us to see Jesus for who he is, that Jesus is, he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, now follow this with me. Show me one thing there in any way that implies to any degree that you overcome because of something you are doing. You overcome because God has birthed you into his family, given you faith, the means by which you are birthed, and then faith to see and understand, believing God, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is who God declared him to be and who he manifested himself to be. So now, overcoming the world hinges only on the faith that's been given to us by God to bring us to belief and continue trusting Christ. So this is the victory. So here again, I ask the question, has God already given us the victory or has he not? Yes. So how is it then that we experience this victory, realize this victory on a daily basis? It is by faith. In other words, faith is believing God. So while we are always being pulled, distracted from truth, we have to rest and be anchored in the truth, 
trusting totally in Jesus and Jesus alone, and understanding that no matter what it may appear to be, we are victorious in Christ. Again, Paul made this so clear in his epistle to the Corinthians, whenever he says that this uh, this, uh, this light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh a far more great, exceeding, eternal weight of glory. While we look not to the things which are seen, which are temporal, but the things which are not seen, which are eternal. So how is it that Paul, suffering as he did and being attacked as he was, and by the way, did they attack Paul because they didn't like Paul? Why did they attack Paul? The gospel because of Christ. Are you following this? It wasn't about Paul at all. In fact, Jesus himself said to Ananias, if you recall, go unto him, I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Remember that? So yeah, Paul suffered, but the suffering wasn't Paul being attacked. The suffering was Christ being attacked in Paul. The gospel being attacked, which Paul identified in Are you following this? So the attacks are not personal, though we experience them personally. They are against the faith. And here's the point. If you are being attacked and it's about you, then you will be defeated. But if you are standing and rooted in the faith and the faith is being attacked, you are already an overcomer and provided the victory in Jesus Christ. So how do we experience this victory? The way we experience it is faith, (laughs) believing God. So we believe God, we understand. But here's the question and this is leading us into where we're going. So I believe God. Well, let me tell you something. I've had people a lot of times say to me a lot of funky things concerning what they believe or about how, I just believe this by faith. I'm going, wait a minute. You're claiming you something by faith. Do you not understand what faith is? Faith is believing God. And believing God is not you believing something you want God to have said or do. But it's believing what God has said and done, but what he has said. And so the point I'm making is, you say, okay, so we, we experience the victory that's already been provided for us in Christ. We stand, we maintain the position, Ephesians 6, we maintain the position of victory. We're not looking to gain victory. No, we're, we're maintaining the position of victory and Hence, now we are experiencing daily this victory, or moment by moment, this victory that God's already provided us in his son, Jesus Christ. So then the question is, how is that? By faith. Okay. But what is faith? Well, yes, the definition in Hebrews 11, of course. But what is faith? Faith is what? Believing God. All through Hebrews 11, God spoke, they believed it produced action, right? It produced obedience because they believed. But God gave them faith to believe what he had said. So here's what I'm saying to you. So faith is believing what God has said. How do we overcome the world? I know I'm being repetitive. I'm trying to drive this home to you, okay? I want you to see the connection. How are we overcomers? Faith. What is faith? Believing God. Here's my question. How can you possibly realize the victory which comes only by believing God if you don't even understand what God has said or what God has done? That's a fair question. Do you not believe that? Is that not a fair question? Are you following what I'm asking you? In other words, if you don't understand what this faith is, meaning the faith, which Jude refers to here, 
How do you expect to really experience and realize the victory that's already been provided when it comes by faith, which is believing God, if you don't even know what God has said or what God means when he says something because you have no understanding of the faith? And then you're left to all this subject about, well, I just believe this by faith. That's nonsense. What do you mean? You believe what by faith? What are you, you, you're believing that God's going to do something that he never said he was going to do? What does that even mean? So the victory is realized as we are daily trusting and resting in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, his sufficiency and his finished work, and, and his promises, which are fulfilled in him, God's promises in Christ. We are comers and we are victorious because of the all-sufficient Jesus who dwells within us. He is our armor. He is our victory. Jude goes on to say in his epistle, verse 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Let's read that. Just a few verses down. But beloved, read the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus. I told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. There be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, look at what he says here, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. When he says building up yourselves on your most, you think he's talking about some subjective definition of faith here? What is he talking about? But specifically, what is he talking about, which we just read in verse 3? Earnestly contend for the faith. (laughs) The faith. So he says building up yourselves on your most holy faith. This is the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Keeping the unity of the Spirit. Keeping yourselves in the love of God. Not meaning that we are sustaining our salvation. No. But live in the reality of what's already been provided and positionally declared to be by God. From Paul's exhortation to maintain the position of faith and Jude's exhortation to earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered unto the saints, that exclusivity of faith, which we'll look at next week, we conclude that this faith is a provision from God in and for which we are to personally labor, we are to strive, we are to fight, contend. And this is not a call to simply fight for something in which we have no interest, but rather is a call to invest our entire being to this faith. And we are to be committed to the faith. And when we are able to defend the faith, to be committed to the faith is not to simply claim to be committed to faith, but it is to completely commit ourselves to understanding the truth of the depths of the faith and knowledge of Christ as he has been revealed in his word. As we read moments ago, Jude continued his exhortation to the reader by stating that in contrast to those who have not the Holy Spirit, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. We were talking last week after our study, Brother Stephen and myself, and um, he made mention of something I wanted to kind of speak to this a little bit. That the, um, And you've seen movies and things such as this. You've seen this exemplified or demonstrated in movies. You've watched, no doubt. But Roman soldiers would use, use their shields together to build what was referenced as a shield wall. And it was known as a uh, testoro, or tortoise shell is what it was, defense. And they would join the shields which they individually held with other soldiers to form a solid wall which produced then an impenetrable defense. And they, the, 
the strength of the defense was not alone in one individual shield, but in the corporate use of the shields together as a unit. Could one shield protect one man? Yeah. But could one shield protect an army of men? But could those shields linked together provide a defense that would protect an army of men? In fact, no doubt one shield could protect more than one man, specifically when there was a wall of shields built and multiple could be behind that. Understand. The individual believer is to take the shield together. We have been given the provision of a wall of protection as the church concerning the faith. And this is important in the defending the faith. And as well, also, we then are to one another in the unity of the Spirit in defense of the faith. The unity of the Spirit, the common salvation and the faith, as Jude mentions, are interwoven with one another. While we possess faith, we do not possess our own version of our own interpretation of faith. And the faith, as we will see in our continued study, three, is not individualized. See, understand something. Faith is not individualized for you. You don't have a custom shield of faith. You have the shield of faith. And when put together, guess what it is? that is? The shield of faith. Let me give you another example of that. I individually am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm a believer. I've been born again. I am redeemed. But I am not the church. And you individually are not the church. But guess what? Who is the church? We are the church together. And by the way, (laughs) interestingly enough, we are only the church together when we are together. When I'm out there, I'm still a part of the church, but I'm not the church. When we come together, we make up the local body and church. But let me ask you something. If we ourselves are not maintaining the unity of the Spirit, that's already been provided, we're not manufacturing the unity of the Spirit, we are endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, Paul said in Ephesians 4. So if we are not maintaining the unity of the Spirit as demanded and commanded in Scripture, then how are we really defending the faith if we are not able to come together concerning the faith and have that wall built together in unity, having the mind of Christ as we're looking at in Philippians on Sunday mornings? How is it that we are not, how can we do that if we are not together in that? Not meaning just agreeing on things. No, if we're not firmly rooted and grounded in the faith. Furthermore, let's take that a step further. If there are other believing churches, even ones we fellowship with, that, that not saying they're the only ones, but ones that we fellowship with that are very Christ-centered. And if we are able to be rooted and grounded in the faith, how much more so can we gather defend the faith as that shield wall, if you will, against all the attacks that would come? God's made provision for us. He's already given us the victory. He's given us the means of the victory and how he's provided for us. And believing him is the victory. And the faith, as we will see, individualized, but it's settled. It's concrete. It's absolute. It, it, it is, there's an exclusivity, as I keep mentioning, to this faith or of this faith, in this faith. It, this faith is not 
individualized. It is not subjective. It's not left for your interpretation and my interpretation. This is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, once and for all handed down. And guess what? It's the same faith of which we are speaking tonight that Jude spoke of in the first century. This same, It's not changed. Hear me. People are pragmatic and churches are pragmatic and ministries are pragmatic, but the faith is not. <laughs> it is absolute. It doesn't change. It's not attempting. Look, the faith is not appealing to the world. But the faith is our very lifeline to experiencing the victory as believers. We individually possess this faith, and corporately this faith is that which we defend, and it's God's provision of defense for us. As we continue this study, we'll examine the truth of this faith and answer the question as to what this faith is. So what is this faith? And that's what we're going to look at on next week and try to not just give you five things to say, oh, this defines the faith. I think that's part of the problem, though that can be helpful in some cases. I believe that's part of the problem because we, we tend to say, okay, these are the fundamentals or these are the tenets of the faith. And there are tenets of the faith and there are fundamentals of the faith and that's all true. But I would, I would venture to say to you, I think maybe a better way to state it, which we will look at next week as well, is that there are non-negotiables. There are things that are absolute, that, that, that are just, these are true of the faith that's been handed down. These, these things have never changed, nor will they change. And so we need, to, we need to understand that and look at that so we can engage in the faith ourselves and continue to grow and learn and understand the truth of this faith that we've been handed down. So let us, let us be faithfully committed to the Scriptures and to understanding the Scriptures that we might be good stewards of the Gospel, that we might be faithful stewards. As a matter of fact, if you remember, concerning the Gospel itself, Paul wrote and said, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the ministry of the gospel in its context. That's exactly what he's referencing. And he's saying it's required that, a, that in a stewards that a man be found faithful concerning the ministry of the gospel, concerning the faith, concerning Jesus. It's required faithful stewards. We have so... <laughs> we, we have become so self-centered... And especially Americanized Christianity, if I can use that term, just for the sake of understanding is why I use it. I don't believe there is such a thing as Americanized Christianity, but I'm just saying for the sake of the argument. We've become so self-centered and Americanized or American-perverted Christianity, let's just say it like that, that we view everything as it relates to us individually, whether that be as a nation individually as a nation or whether it be individually as a one church body or whatever or individually as a person and we become so self-focused and self-centered that when we read passages such as contending for the faith or such as suffering for the cause of christ we immediately want to apply that to some personal thing that's happened to us not understanding that this has nothing to do with you personally it has to do with the faith that has once been handed down to all saints for all times, not just something that you experience or that you fight for today because you want to do something right. And if you don't if you understand what I'm saying, let me say this and I'm finished. Think about this for a moment. You turn on your radio today, and I am telling you, more often than not, 
you're going to hear on your quote-unquote Christian radio stations. Songs that are focused on you and your problems and your ups and downs and your struggles. What's wrong with that? Everything's wrong with that. And what we've done is we've isolated ourselves away from the truth of the faith once delivered unto the saints <laughs> to make it all subjective and all about us. It's, I, I've said this to you many times, and I'll just say it again. I'm, 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 we're done. It's not about you. It's just not. I know I'm bursting your bubble, right? It's not about you, and it's not about me, and it's not about this church. It's about Christ and the gospel. It's about the faith. It's about God's eternal purpose. Do we believe God has an eternal purpose? Do we believe that God is faithfully unfolding and revealing this eternal purpose? Do we believe that God uses the church for that very purpose? Yes. So this isn't about us. And the faith is not about you. You know, I love what a friend of mine says, and it's been said before. I'm sure it wasn't original with him. When it comes to the faith, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to salvation, redemption, all we are are beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. I've received, I'm just telling others where you can receive. And this is what brings us in unity together is Christ and the faith. And so we'll look again more into that next week. But let us understand Again, that this is not subjective, this is not individualized, this is not up up for discussion and debate and argument. The the faith is absolute, it's exclusive, it is given by God, it's not left for your interpretation, it's left for what God has declared it to be. And again, those who read Jude's letter understood exactly what this faith was. So let's look into that on next week, Lord willing.